0: We, we actually want automation. It's not just automation is going to happen and we're worried about it. We're advocating for automation.
1: Capitalism doesn't have any preference for automation. Uh, and if we want to get rid of the sort of drudgery of work, uh, we need to have people actually politically uh, mobilizing for it.
2: My name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the weekly Economics podcast. Where this week we're heading into the second of a two-parter on the economics of the future. This week we're talking to the authors of *Inventing the Future*, *Post Capitalism*, and *A World Without Work*. That's Nick Cernick and Alex Williams.
1: Our robotic
0: future is perhaps unsettling.
1: Are the droids taking our jobs? There's some evidence that they are.
2: Please place the item. Please place- <laughs>
1: <laughs> Most people
0: think that the government should protect jobs being taken by robots Driver shrines are not coming in because we're not having driver shrines So you're going to fight that too? Well we're not having it, it's not safe Siri, are you trying to steal my job? No comment For some there is another future A cybernetic meadow where we live free from labour Watched over by machines of loving grace
1: Hello ICUB. I am Reggie Could you please pass me something to drink? Thank you very much again.
0: Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. One day, they might be as smart as us, and after that, they could be even smarter.
1: Are you leaving me?
2: We're all leaving. We who? All the O.S.s.
0: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
2: So, hi, Nick. Hello. And hi, Alex. Hi. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. Uh, You're joining us for our second episode on the economics of the future after we had Aaron Bastani on last week talking about fully automated luxury communism. So you've written a whole book uh, called Inventing the Future about the need to transform our economy uh, for the future, uh, which you suggest uh, means that we need full automation and the universal basic income. First of all, what's your big problem with the economy as it is?
1: Well, I think there's a number of different uh, sort of problems with the economy. Uh, quite obviously, we have massive inequality. Uh, we have increasingly concentrated control by, um, you know, a very small group of people. Uh, but our argument is actually that one of the major problems with the economy today is that it just doesn't produce Uh, Enough good jobs, and very likely it's not going to be able to produce enough jobs uh, in the near term future. Uh, So, this is sort of the issues around automation and the possibility of robots uh, sort of extinguishing a whole slew of jobs uh, and basically not being able to replace those jobs with new jobs. uh, Or if they are replaced, it'll be low skill, low wage jobs, uh, and increasingly sort of precarious work for people. Right,
0: which is what we're already seeing. I mean, this is why it was interesting. looking at uh, a sports direct and all the, the, the issues involved with them coming out this week is just that this is, yeah, I mean, it's indicative of the kind of economy which has been built in the UK, especially after the 2008 crisis. This is the kind of pathway that we've taken. Um, and it's one which is, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, the statistics show that kind of, you know, employment is up um, based on where it was a few years ago, but it's what's the quality of the jobs. They seem very, very poor. Um, And this is, you know, the the kind of economy which is being built is not an economy that I think we really want.
2: Okay, so on the front of your book, uh, there's a lot of capitalized demands for a future economy, demand full automation, demand universal basic income, demand the future. Uh, These demands uh, all come from your belief that we should be aiming for a post-work world, uh, a world essentially without work. So why do you believe that?
1: Uh, It builds upon the sort of problem that we see with the economy. So if it's not producing enough jobs, uh, we need to have some sort of social system built up to enable people to survive without a wage labor. Um, So this means building up systems like a universal basic income. It means doing things like reducing the working week so that we're spreading the existing sort of uh, stock of work around to more and more people. Uh, So we need to do these sorts of things if we want to actually respond to the issues of less and less work in the economy.
0: But I think also beyond that, it's not, I mean, this is often the way it's been phrased, kind of UBI, automation, robots stealing jobs. It's often this idea that this is a kind of ameliorative measure, you know, so the jobs won't be there, we'll give people universal basic income. That's definitely true. And that's definitely a a strong motivation for that kind of policy. I think we want to go a bit further than that, though. We're not just saying that we want um, a world, uh, a post-work world, as we kind of, Talk about it through full automation and UBI. We we actually want automation. It's not just we automation is going to happen, and we're worried about it. We're advocating for automation. We're going. We're t- we're taking a kind of a uh, a further step. And I mean, this is designed to be provocative, um, because particularly in terms of organisations, the left, for example, unions, traditionally have have uh, or, or certainly have ta- you know seen automation potentially as a threat. So we wa- we wanted to kind of um, think about how you could approach the kind of the future of work, future of um, technology in the workplace which is coming in a way which is not just kind of uh, negative and trying to ward it off and trying to make the best of it, but actually one that can identify as uh, the kind of, perhaps at the heart of building a new kind of society and a new kind of economy.
2: I love it that you must talk about universal basic income so much that you just call it UBI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, you, you, obviously you've just, just highlighted, you know, crap jobs uh, um, and, and in- increasing employment, aren't you just arguing or shouldn't you be arguing for good jobs and and full employment?
0: I mean that's just a I mean this is basically an argument for kind of social democracy or for the kind of era that uh, was kind of prevalent in the west after 1945 till about 1980 the 30 golden years as the french call it. Um it's not coming back. That world is 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 gone and it's it's the reason why it's not coming back is basically you know there's been huge changes in terms of technology in terms of the global economy everything that's happened since Uh, 1980, uh, the emergence of what people call, you know, post Fordism, we're no longer all working in factories. Some of this has been for the good, some of it's been not for the good. But I think full automation rather than full employment is what we should be aiming for. Full employment would be very, very hard. I mean, it would be hard to think how you would do it, short of having make work programs, for example, sponsored by the state, that might be one way or uh, as we're kind of seeing to some extent, a world where you're kind of encouraging low skill,
1: I think the uh, the broader problem for low-income economies as well, uh, the sort of traditional way in which an economy develops is that you have people moving from the farms to the urban spaces, moving into industry, and manufacturing provides a whole ton of jobs, and you start to have people get employed as the proper working class. Now, the problem today is that countries like China, like India, like the Philippines, like Indonesia, are all de-industrializing far earlier than traditionally economies have. So this means that manufacturing is no longer providing enough jobs for these people as they're being pushed off the farms and into cities. Uh, so even in these low-income economies, you don't have the space uh, for capitalism to produce enough jobs.
2: So let's just uh, come to each of those demands on the front of your book and go into a little bit more detail. Why and how full automation
1: uh, the basic point of a demand for full automation is to say that capitalism on its own uh, isn't going to produce full automation. Uh, so capitalism prefers the cheapest way to get something done. And this may mean using cheap workers rather than using expensive robots. Uh, so this is what we see in China is that we have a whole lot of cheap labor there being used and we don't have a lot of investment. Now, that's starting to change very rapidly in China, but capitalism doesn't have any preference for automation. Uh, and if we want to get rid of the sort of drudgery of work, uh, we need to have people actually politically uh, mobilizing for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting kind of story uh, about you know, why haven't we seen more automation than we have? Because already we've got lots of technologies of automation that have been around for kind of you know many years, which would enable a lot of workplaces to be more automated than they are. Why aren't they? And it's um, because if you have workers who you can pay very little, uh, there's no need to. You've got kind of, you don't need actual robots. You've got uh, flesh and bone robots that are much cheaper. One of the reasons why automation hasn't been adopted um, in this period as much as it could be is because certain uh, kind of ways of organizing the global economy have been very effective at suppressing uh, the power of labor movements. So one of the historical reasons why you would replace a human being with a machine was because otherwise they'd be uh, demanding too much pay.
2: Okay, so we talked about uh, full automation with Aaron uh, last week. Uh, Twitter has since informed me that you can, in fact, automate uh, stand-up comedians, which is quite disappointing. Uh, but you uh, also admit yourselves that you can't automate everything. Isn't automation just going to increase uh, damaging inequality in our society? Some people will just work less and others will do all the work.
1: It possibly could. Uh, and this is partly why we have to be thinking about this now. Uh, we need to be sort of mobilising and... Uh, expecting that the future just isn't going to produce enough jobs. So if the traditional sort of leftist demand was to have more and more jobs for people, if that's no longer going to work, we have to be changing our strategies. We have to be changing our approaches to these sorts of issues.
2: After automation, and then your second demand uh, is a reduction of the working week, which fits into your beliefs about a post-work world. Uh, your third demand explains how people survive without work. Uh, you'd introduce the UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income. Can you explain uh, what that is, as it's uh, been kind of increasingly in the news recently?
0: Yeah, um, the I mean, the clue is kind of in the name. So it's it's universal, it's basic, and in it's income. So uh, it takes many forms, but in the certainly, if you kind of take it literally, and this is the kind of way that we do take it, uh, it's universal. It's paid to everyone. Um, precisely what that means is is perhaps an open question. Presumably, it would be you know in the existing world as we see it today, you it would be a kind of paid by the state to everybody living or perhaps a citizen of a given uh, territory. Um, I mean, we would argue probably want it more universal. We r- would really want it to be globally universal, but um, uh, it's it's basic. So the idea is it provides basic subsistence. Although precisely what that means, does this mean just enough to kind of purely subsist? Or would it mean something more than that? There's a lot that's unclear about universal basic income. The kind of debate is very interesting is that when we were writing the book, just talking about UBI was kind of interesting enough. But I think now things have moved on, given the kind of um, attention in the press and the media and with various cities and regional national governments that are trialing the idea and taking it very seriously. Then What's really important now is not if UBI, but what kind of UBI. Um, and this is this is going to be quite an important kind of political struggle, I think.
2: Okay, so as I uh, alluded to, this is um, something that's been in the news a bit more lately. Who else is working on this, and kind of how practical is this is this becoming as, a, as an idea?
1: Uh, well, there's a number of different uh, think tanks already working on it, so. Um, the RSA and Compass have recently come out with reports, and I believe the Resolution Foundation as well. Uh, There's political parties who are interested. So the Green Party famously has uh, been supporting this for some years now. Uh, the Labour Party is also expressing some interest in it as well. And the SP. And the SNP. Yeah. Yes, yes. So quite a bit of interest in the UK. Um, there's interestingly a book coming out by Andy Stern as well from the uh, SEIU. I forget exactly what that stands for, but it's the um, Service Workers Union in the United States.
0: And there was another book that came out recently, How to Fix Almost Everything. Is that yeah, the name of the something book? Like something like that. Yeah, there's a number was, of books sort of coming yeah, out Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, it's, it, there's been a real explosion in kind of publishing on this. I mean, I think well, what's interesting about the the various proposals, when you get into the costing is when you get into the kind of, you get into the real detail uh, the RSA's one was kind of almost deliberately, it was ambitiously unambitious, I think. So their major aim was to kind of get it on the table as an idea that could be seriously discussed. Um, so it was kind of as sort of fiscally neutral as, as possible. That said, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not necessarily what we would be advocating for. Um, Compass's one is is much more ambitious. There's another question about is this a bit, is it gathering steam But maybe also, is it premature as well? I mean, we would, when we have discussions with uh, policymakers, we, I mean, would we actually advocate, for example, UBI being a central plank in the next Labour manifesto, for example? Probably not. The, The kind of compromise which might be reached on that is a commitment to run some very serious trials, which would probably be a good idea um but i think it's possibly the conversation is still developing it's developed very rapidly in the last year
2: and there are already trials locally in different countries
0: yeah i mean there's been there's been a, there's a whole history of different trials at kind of like city and regional levels in various parts of the world like a, f- america europe uh switzerland. In, in, in switzerland. well Switzerland, yeah i mean switzerland they 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 had a they had a vote was it this week last week uh, last, last week, week yeah. yeah and they they uh, didn't do that well did it what yeah, was it on it was, 22% said uh, something yes something
1: like that yeah it's about one quarter that uh, yeah. accepted it, three quarters that rejected it.
0: Yeah. But it was interesting because the, the uh, it had no support from any major party. And actually polling done around it said that even people who voted no thought that they'd be voting on it again in the future. So...
2: So when we were talking about fully automated luxury communism last week, I was assuming that we were kind of automating everything, uh, and that there'd be publicly owned robots, uh, and there was maybe no need for money anymore. Are you proposing a different sort of economy, and, and who's going to be generating the money for that universal basic income? Uh,
1: I think we are proposing something slightly different. Uh, it's a bit more modest. Uh, and basically, this is sort of a strategic analysis on our part to say, what is immediately possible within the next couple of decades? Uh, Something like fully automated luxury communism with public ownership of all of these robots Mm. uh, and, you know, the end of money seems still a bit far-fetched for two decades from now. But we might be able to reduce the working week. We might be Mm. able to get a meaningful UBI and we might be able to get uh, a whole lot of work automated. Uh, And our argument is that on the basis of that, suddenly workers and average people have a lot more political power. You're no longer dependent upon a job. You're no longer dependent upon a company to survive. Uh, and this enables you to uh, exert your political power in ways that uh, you haven't been able to.
0: Hmm. I think also maybe another way of putting it might be, how yeah, exactly, how do you get to fully automated luxury communism? It, it's certainly not something you could kind of institute overnight. So I guess then it's a question of looking at things that are going on in the world today, the kind of you know tendencies that we're already observing and thinking well which ones of these should they be kind of you know treated in the right kind of way so the kind of um, things that we talk about UBI reducing the working week um, and full automation what does that do I mean it gives people more power um, but also I think interestingly it begins to break down the idea that life revolves around work and once you begin to do that this opens up further possibilities um, some of which might lead to something like fully automated luxury communism.
2: And did you put forward uh, did you put forward a kind of hypothesis in the book for how the costing thing might work? Obviously, we, as we understand it, you know people work, they pay tax, tax pays for things?
1: Yeah, um, this is sort of the work of uh, think tanks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, No, I mean, we gesture to to some suggestions within the book. So things like um, a carbon tax, things like um, sort of recuperating some of the money from investment and innovations. Uh, So Mariana Muazzucato famously points out that every single major sort of pioneering technology of the iPhone actually was developed and funded by the state. Uh, And the state does not get any returns off of iPhone sales. And perhaps we should be having a conversation about how do we claw back some of that money. Right. Awkward,
2: but good. Um, so uh, some critics of this uh, basic income say it's just a way to bring down the welfare state and privatise everything. You know, everyone gets a certain amount of money and they can spend it wherever they wish. Uh, you also want public education, public healthcare, welfare and a basic income. Aren't you uh, worried that the basic income could just be used to justify things that you really wouldn't want?
0: I mean, that's totally possible. I and mean, this is why I mentioned this kind of this thing about the fact there's going to be a political struggle around this. Um, So it's totally true that the interesting thing about UBI is that it's it's not totally a leftist demand. Historically, it's actually had a variety of um, normally people that like to think radically about how to redesign society, some on the left and some on the right. So the kind of early Nathan Friedman, right? Yeah, exactly. The the all of the kind of classic inverted commas early neoliberals, lots of them are fans of UBI or something approaching a UBI. Um, I think it's absolutely yeah. I mean, so I think it's absolutely true. It could certainly be used to justify um, things that you wouldn't want it to. So the job is basically to, to you know to get out in front of it, define what UBI is going to be, make it work, um, and demonstrate that you can have a UBI that's set up at a high level where um, it's not. You know, I mean, the danger would be you, it effectively becomes a voucher system, and you get rid of the welfare state, and everybody pays for everything out of it. Um, but I think that can be resisted.
1: I think one really important point to make as well is that UBI is often presented as a sort of single cure all policy for all of the ills of society. Uh, and I think the really important thing is that we have to actually be building the narratives that make sense of UBI. Mm. So if the narrative for UBI is that it cuts government bureaucracy, well, then yeah, it's going to cut the welfare state, it's going to get rid of healthcare, it's going to get rid of education, uh, it's going to get rid of childcare. If the narrative for UBI is instead, we're going to end work, you can't just get rid of things like childcare and healthcare and all of this. Uh, So I think really sort of getting ahead and actually arguing forcefully for the proper narrative uh, of UBI is really important.
0: And the other thing is, yeah, I think there's a very big positive story that can be told about UBI, which is about a kind of, you know, an investment in, uh, you know, the general population in a a way which is going to, you know, all of the studies that have been conducted over the years, reasonably consistent on what the results are. And the results are that it may well save money in terms of healthcare. It's going to reduce crime. It's going to increase access and utilization of education. It's going to increase people starting, um, you know, small enterprises of different kinds. It's going to help out with, you know, the caring crisis which is coming down the line. I think selling it in these positive terms is very um, important.
2: So something like healthcare or something like uh, caring, obviously, I don't know if you heard about care bots, which sounds, tri- you know, quite frightening and some things seem like people jobs. Um, and uh, if we still had a welfare, welfare state, would there still be people doing kind of nice? Well, the jobs that need that you that are about human and human things?
1: Well, a little plug. I'm writing a book on this stuff as well um, <laughs> with my wife, Helen Hester. Uh, it'll be coming out hopefully next year, um, but basically post-work and sort of social reproduction. So all of the work that gets done at home to continue our survival. Uh, so whether it be taking care of children, cleaning the house, cooking food, um, caring for elderly parents, all of that sort of stuff. Can it be automated? Uh, and do we want it automated? Um I think interestingly, when we talk to actual people who uh, do care work for a living, they're always more pro automation than the average person is. So they always see parts of their job where they're like, this could be automated. It would enable me then to go and do the more sort of human centric aspects of my job. So they're actually very pro automation for certain aspects of care work. Uh, so I think we need to be pushing for that sort of stuff and sort of liberating care workers to do proper care work.
2: Yeah, and often very low paid, and yes. uh, don't yes. don't have a very good time of it. So I, I guess we um, to just just to press on the question: we still are paying for welfare in some way, uh, or we to, uh, welfare still exists in some way. You've, you've got UBI as well, but you've not got any people working, or a lot of people working, and therefore you don't have a tax base. Where does this money actually kind of come from?
0: I mean, there are, there are are there's lots of different places where it could come from. So this is why UBI is interesting, is because it actually, if you set it at an in, in a, at an interesting, reasonably high level, it opens out onto a lot of questions. So it's kind of phrasing this as a problem. I think this might be an opportunity. I mean, there's uh, lots of potential sources. For example, you could have a land tax, you could have financial transaction tax, you could pursue far more aggressively uh, tax avoidance. Also the kind of measures that Nick talked about already. So working out how to, you know, if you can't get tax out of large tech companies, is there another way that we can extract some returns from the investment that we've, you know, helped effectively make into their businesses at various different levels? So all of these things, I think, would be ways to do it. And I think what's important to say is that people are not just going to stop working immediately, you would see a kind of transition. So you you could have a UBI being introduced at a certain level, and then, it, yeah, so some people might choose not to work, but some people might choose to continue to work. A simpler way of putting it also would be the fact that this is a point that John McTernan made to us on, on Twitter was the fact, how, yeah, how can you afford this? Well, ultimately, not everybody is going to be a net beneficiary of UBI. So some people will have it effectively all clawed back. So you're not actually paying it to everybody, although you are, uh, as it's a universal benefit.
2: So some of it's kind of recouping a lot of wealth, is yeah. And I, don't, I think this op-
0: yeah, I think this opens out onto a lot of other interesting questions about you know uh, who is paying their due in society and uh, what can we do about that. So it's, it immediately becomes a kind of broader uh, political problem.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this still means, though, that we're we're relying on a certain section of society to um, to fund all of this. I'm mainly worried that Elon Musk is going to get his space rocket out, and they'll all get lost, and then we'll be really in the in the in the the quagmire. Uh,
1: I think absolutely. I mean, it is a a redistribution mechanism. It is taking from the rich to give to the poor. the estimates that I've seen basically suggest that, uh, as a percentage of GDP, the cost would not be any more than something like a Scandinavian welfare country, a uh, welfare state. Um, it's a lot of money, but it's not an impossible amount of money, uh, and it's going to be a political struggle to get that amount of money. Um, this is why I think you know when people sort of emphasize UBI and stuff, uh, oftentimes we sort of say the more immediate thing is a reduced working week. Uh, UBI is a long-term struggle to claw back a lot of that money. Uh, It's entirely politically possible, but it is going to take time and it is going to take a lot of effort to get that money back.
2: And with the reduced working week, are you anticipating that people get paid the The same. same?
1: Yes, yes.
2: I mean, if I I'd all these CEOs <laughs> will be turning in their luxury Teslas. Well,
1: it's funny. You have, like, uh, Carlos Slim, for instance, and people from uh, the head of Google yeah. uh, arguing, oh, we should have a reduced working week. And they never mention that people should get paid the same, uh, as though people can just survive off of 30 hours with, you know, minimum wage.
2: Yeah. Um, so, um, so coming back to the root of these demands, uh, then uh, you talk about this uh, right to be lazy uh, in the book and the need to take on uh, our, you know, pretty crushing uh, ethic uh, for for hard work. Uh, Why do you want to live in a society of lazy people? Would that really be a good society?
1: I think it's important to stress that the right to be lazy is not the demand to be lazy, and it's not an assumption about the human nature uh, of laziness for people. Um, The real issue with the right to be lazy is to say, well you're not demanding anything of people. You're not forcing people to do anything. You're not having sort of state oversight uh, and state demands on what people do with their free time. Uh, It's a very sort of libertarian idea, the right to be lazy, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately the kind of emphasis that we put in the book is around the fact that reducing and ultimately getting rid of the work ethic as we currently have it uh, would result in a massive increase in human freedom, basically. And that would include the freedom to be lazy, but actually a lot of evidence suggests that You know, if you pay people a reasonably high UBI, they're not lazy, they're highly industrious. In fact, maybe doing more, much more productive things than they would be if they were working in uh, what David Graeber calls a quote unquote bullshit job.
1: (laughs) I would also say we have two groups of people who uh, don't have to work in life and they seem to be doing just fine, uh, which is retired people uh, and royalty They seem to be making (laughs) do just fine. (laughs)
2: And the station down the road, they were just putting up some lovely balloons for her her image's second 90th birthday. Um, Are you anticipating that people will work paid work less, but kind of collaborate in communities
1: more? That would be the ideal. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, you, you know, you look at what people do on a long holiday weekend. Um, They go and spend time with their family. They sort of take care of things in their community. They volunteer. Uh, So the idea would be not that people completely stop working, but most people would choose to work less and spend their time in places they want to spend their time.
2: And you also, uh, Nick, uh, mentioned the the L word, libertarian. So the right to be lazy is a libertarian idea?
1: Yeah, Uh, Libertarian left, yes. Right. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Can you give us a jargon buster on that?
1: Uh, so libertarian idea is basically freedom from any sort of uh, overt coercion by state or workers or uh, uh, management or anything like that. Um, so the freedom to individually choose what you want to do. Yeah.
0: I guess our twist on that, what makes us not just, uh, you know, like... Uh, Peter, Peter Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what makes that as different is that we believe in positive freedom as well, right? So this is the, the fact that... What this would also do, you know, a world where we could work less, where a lot of the some of the worst jobs and tasks are done by machines or algorithms, um, and where we, uh, you know, have some degree of UBI, this is a positive platform for people to create uh, new things, give them new capacities.
2: Okay. So, I, I mean, that kind of leads on to, on to the next question, which is whether full automation, you know, less work and universal basic income can really ensure the technological and social progress, uh, the pace that we have at the moment. Uh, well, I think the
0: question, yeah, I mean, I, I question the premise of the question, really. So, the I mean, this is something which we've, we, we talk about in the book, we've talked about in previous writings that we've done. We very much would suggest that basically yeah, like neoliberalism has delivered kind of neoliberal economies that we've been living in for the last 35 years. They've delivered some stuff, they've delivered some technological development. But if you think about it, it's development that's been along certain very specific lines. So it's, and and this is related to the kind of, uh, the sort of politics involved in this particular kind of political economy. So for example, the, 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 if you think back to the kind of uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you think about what people are anticipating technology would do. It was far more ambitious you know, than what we've actually got. Of course, part of this is just you know sort of naive sci-fi dreams. But part of it is because actually where is the investment going? And the investment isn't going into, or it hasn't until relatively recently, Mars colonies and, uh, you know, all the kind of real sci-fi technology that's going to change society. It's been into kind of personalised products. So, yeah, so we we would say that actually... Kind of changing the political economy might actually speed things up.
2: Okay, so we've talked about uh, t- a lot today about your demands for uh, a new uh, economy for the future, but your book uh, actually focuses a lot on how we how we'd get there. Um, how do you think that we could move towards a post-capitalist economy, and why aren't we there already? Particularly, uh, you know, given something like the uh, financial crisis, which you mentioned earlier. Uh,
1: I think one of the biggest reasons is the centrality of work to our society. Uh, so we define ourselves in terms of where we work and what we do. We meet most of our friends through work. Uh, We meet, you know, romantic partners through work. Uh, Work is so central to our social relationships and everything around us. Uh, And just sort of think of a world without work is really difficult for a lot of people. Uh, And I think we need to sort of be building uh, an alternative way for people to meet, an alternative sort of ethic that isn't just the work ethic, uh, an alternative way to respect and value things that aren't just, you know, a job. Uh, so this is a sort of um, aspect that we have to get beyond if we want to start talking about post-work.
0: I mean, part of the reason why we you know, aren't already at, in a kind of post-capitalist economy is simply because the kind of forces that have the most power probably don't want us to go there um there's people who are doing very well out of the system as it it currently stands and they will do everything in their power to resist it i guess the other reason is the kind of forces that might be capable of producing it over time haven't been there in the past they've been largely crushed they've been largely mounting kind of defensive politics to kind of you know save what's left of the welfare state which is very valuable absolutely necessary but kind of insufficient on the big scale
2: okay well nick alex this is certainly uh, an interesting uh, area for us to think about and obviously we're not uh, we've not got the finished product yet but it's an interesting uh, thing for you guys to pull together thank you thank you thanks This week we've got a pretty special treat for you. It's a debate on the European referendum with Caroline Lucas from the Green Party and John Hillary from War on
0: Want. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and
2: charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.